This is the current federal tax developments for the week of June the 1st, 2021. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and I'm coming here today from Phoenix, where we'll be up near the century mark uh, by late this afternoon, which is, yeah, we just call it warm here because we're going to go well beyond that probably before the month is up for June. But we'll take a look at what's going on this week in the area of taxes. And some of what's happening this week is I'm going to cover something I usually don't pay much attention to. I've never been a fan of Treasury's Green Book because normally that's the administration's wish list that Congress promptly ignores. However, because we are in the first year of administration and it does appear that some of the Green Book items might have traction, we're going to talk a little bit about where we stand on the Green Book proposals. As I've said, 99 times out of 100, though, uh, I've found that spending time on the Green Book has been a waste of time, traditionally because nobody cares. Congress certainly doesn't much. But they care a little bit more in the first year of a new presidency. So might be a little bit helpful to look there. We're also going to then take a look at a couple of other things that happened this week. Uh, a court case where the tax court informs the taxpayer that it really doesn't matter whether or not the party paying the taxpayer had to issue a 1099, which turns out the taxpayer was mistaken and they had to, but ignore that problem. Even if they don't have to, you still have to report the income. So we'll talk about that little uh, education the tax court gave to a taxpayer. We're also going to find some more information the IRS has issued about the unemployment exclusion and community property states. Want to discuss a little bit about what was going on in that realm and, you know, kind of work from there, see how things are going. And then finally, we're going to take a look at a technical advice memorandum that uh, looks at the fact of the liability for an all events test dispute, understanding what that exactly means what the IRS was looking at here, and we'll discuss a little bit about the long and kind of interesting history of the IRS and this area that we talk about involving the all events test. But let's go ahead and start with what was the big story all week, which was the discussions we got during the week when the Green, when the green Book got issued by Treasury. The formal name of the Green Book is the General Explanation of the Administration's Fiscal Year 2022 Proposals, it's called the Green Book because, kind of like the Blue Book, this particular document comes out, in this case, annually, and always has a green cover. So if you buy the paper version or you get the paper version from the government printing office, you'll get one with a green cover. So we've been referred to as the Green Book. The Green Book issued here in May of 2021 okay, and starts discussing the president's proposals. Now, we already know a lot about those proposals. We've even discussed them roughly here previously. And I want to remind you that the Green Book is still not legislative text. So you have to be careful going too far off the Green Book. What matters ultimately is the legislative text, and even more to the point, legislative text that manages to get passed by Congress, which we are far from at this point in time. There already are some discussions, certainly with certain senators, on the Democratic side regarding what exactly uh, has to be done to this bill to change it, to get them to go along with it. 
So it's been most of the uh, interest has been concentrated on Senator Manchin of West Virginia. Uh, but, you know, it's one of those things where they can't really afford to lose a single vote. And that makes this whole issue a lot more complicated in terms of getting a proposal through Congress. But nevertheless, we're going to at least talk about some of these because presumably you're going to think here in the first year of an administration uh, and there is full control by the Democrats of all of the branches of government. And in theory, it appears that they've got the ruling from the Senate parliamentarian that they can go ahead and use the budget reconciliation process to pass this through so they can get it through with 51 votes in the Senate. They do not have to worry about getting 60 votes in order to move to the, a vote to the floor. So let's talk about where this goes. A key component of the proposal we'd heard about before was that capital gain rates would, have been, would be raised to essentially be the same as rates on any other types of ordinary income. Uh, plus, you'd have the debt investment income tax on top of it. So I'd be looking at rates well in excess of 40%. We'd be at 39.6 in that regard. Uh, on top of that, then we would have on top of that the net investment income tax of 3.8%. So we'd be looking at, you know, 43.4% as a federal rate on capital gains and qualified dividends. Now, I had suggested before, because previously this is what had happened, was that Congress would prefer to let that effective date be next year, which, by the way, it is for most everything else in this proposal, on the theory that that would cause Congress to very quickly, or I should say cause taxpayers to quickly go ahead and start um, you know, selling off capital gain items in order to lock in the lower capital gain rates, and that would give them a big windfall this year. It appears that is not the point of this bill. In fact, it appears that the last day you could have sold uh, anything and not have to pay long-term, not have your long-term capital gain rates be at the 40-plus percent level if you are high income was April 27th, right? The day that this was announced on April 28th, it became too late to sell. So when they pronounced the proposal that they were going to that top rate, uh, that was the date they want to lock in. That has been done by Congress before using the announcement date as the lock-in date. Uh, we've seen that. We even saw it to a limited extent in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Uh, you may remember that that was kind of the case where if you bought, now that was more for a taxpayer-friendly move, but any assets bought after the date it was kind of first announced that they were going to allow 100% bonus depreciation got the 100% bonus. Same thing, so that but not anything before that date. And there were various other rules. So not totally something we've never seen before, but it is somewhat unusual. Everything else appears to take effect in 2022. So you will have a 2021 year end. That includes the limitation or removal of the step-up in basis. And we'll talk about that here in just a second. On assets for taxpayers with over a million dollars worth of, we'll talk about a million dollars worth of what in just a second, because that's also an interesting aside. 
Now, one thing that does appear to be significant here, though, is, you know, there's going to be a cap on deferred exchanges, 1031 deferred exchanges, capping those that no more than $500,000 in deferred gain per year for 1031 exchanges. Now, it appears the way they're discussing the due date that that or the effective date is that would apply to exchanges that would be completed on or after January 1st of 2022, not exchanges you entered into. So, you know, we have the 180-day holding period, 180-day period to replace the property. Well, based on that, if you went all the way out to that date, uh, we're coming up on what's effectively going to be the date you would have had to have started the process to have the full 180 days to replace the property. And that's going to come up relatively, you know, come up here right at the end of June. So effectively, you know, we're going to see how that works. And obviously, there's already been some discussion of trying to get that changed so that it would be exchanges that were initiated after the first of next year, not uh, the issue of exchanges that were completed by the end of this year. So we'll get into that as we get there. Now, the stepped-up basis repeal, it does say it would be a million dollars worth of income, and there would be a portable threshold. Now, I got to wonder if that doesn't need to get rewritten to say a million dollars worth of step-up or a million dollars worth of assets that could be identified for step-up, because a million dollars worth of income is just kind of difficult to make work on this realm. We're talking about a estate tax issue versus an income tax issue. Also, it means, I guess, if you die earlier in the year, you know, you have a better chance of not having a problem. Uh, we'll see. That one seems a little bit interesting. However, there's another item they did put in here that may be of more interest. And that is if you have assets that are held by entities that aren't individuals, like, you know, let's say, you know, uh, basically, you know, these trusts that never expire or that expire after a long, long time. So those dynasty trust structures, at least once every 90 years, you will have to recognize the gain. That would also appear to apply to partnerships. It would appear to apply to S corporations. It would appear to apply to C corporations. So anything, anything you have, if you've had the asset, for 90 years with no gain realization, and it's appreciated, in year 90, you would apparently have to, I don't know if that's 90th anniversary of when you got it, or just at the end of year 90, you have to recognize a gain as if it was sold. That's also one of the things that's discussed in there. Now, one piece of good news for taxpayers is the proposal does fix what was an obvious glitch in the Bipartisan Budget Act Centralized Partnership Audit Regime. If you're aware, if I push out, let's say I have a, I discover a problem on the return. We overreported income on the partnership return. As we know, under the BBA, I can't just amend the return and have the taxpayers and the partners send in revised 1040s. And, you know, if we are past the original filing date, the date for doing a superseding return at the partnership level, or let's say the extended date, if we got an extension, so I can't supersede and effectively replace that partnership return, 
If I'm past that date, then I have to go through the centralized partnership audit regime unless I opted out and I have to be eligible to opt out and opt out. Two things have to be true. So if I'm under BBA, all I can do is, oh, we overreported, we reported 100000 too much income. Well, I have to push that out because it would result in a negative adjustment. And what we do is then all the partners go back and figure out how much less tax they would have paid, let's say, in 2020. Had that number, had the right number been reported, not the wrong number. And then they treat that as a tax credit, assuming I'm issuing this document today because we filed on time by March 15th. We did not file an extension. So I have to go through BBA and I get a tax credit to my 2021 return. Well, now the problem comes up. What if my 2021 return simply doesn't have a lot of tax on it? And it turns out that that tax credit the extra tax I paid in 20 is greater than the total tax I'm going to pay in 21. Well, that credit got lost. Under the proposal in the green book, uh, that would be a refundable credit. So as long you know, if you paid the tax in back in 20, if it turns out that tax credit is greater than your tax in 21, the excess would be refunded. So it'd become a refundable credit. That would be a rather nice change. There's also discussion, though, again, no language, no details, that they're looking at doing some self-employment tax uh, reform. It looks like they want to try to, and the only way you could do this, and so I'm going to say what I think they have to do, although there is a question whether Congress would get into this whole can of worms, would say that self-employment tax would apply for LLC members and limited partners to the extent that you perform, you know, if you perform services for the for the partnership, you would be considered to be subject to self-employment on the business income of the partnership. That would be the structure. Now, it also doesn't say anything about going where we went in the House in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which was also to provide self-employment tax equivalency for S corporations. So we don't have that discussion. Don't know if that would come up, but as I said, since that was in TCJA, it's one of those things you could see coming up here in this one. Okay, let's go to now regular old developments. This is the case of Legoski versus Commissioner, Tax Court Summary Opinion 2021-15, issued on May the 26th. And this particular decision, utterly not surprising, but it's a kind of decision I like to remember is around because it helps you explain things to taxpayers, clients that come in and just won't buy your theory. I don't know about you, but I think everybody who's been in tax any period of time has had some clients say to them, you know, well, what about this? You know, you did services for X this year. You know, did you do any? And they say, oh, yeah. And you say, okay, well, how much did you get paid? Oh, don't worry about that. I got paid less than 600. There's no 1099. As if that kind of eliminates the problem. Obviously, it doesn't. Doesn't matter what whether a 1099 is issued or not, whether it's required to be issued or not, you still have to report the income. Okay, let's talk about Mr. Legowski here. He ran a drop shipping business through Amazon. It was kind of weird. You know, he, he would like go on to eBay or other places and he would like place the orders for items. And then he would have them shipped 
to addresses that people who went into Amazon to buy the items would have. And he would apparently, I would assume, hopefully took a markup on it, right, and sent it on. So it's kind of weird. In essence, this guy is buying from Am buying from eBay to turn around and sell through Amazon. And then have the eBay seller do the shipping to the Amazon customer. Seems like a complicated mess that isn't likely to work well, but it's what he did. Well, he made enough during the year Amazon issued him a 1099K for his gross receipts. Now, Mr. Legowski had apparently studied something somewhere and had come to the conclusion that given what he was doing, Amazon did not have to issue him a 1099. But here is this pesky 1099 he got in the mail. Well, obviously, Amazon didn't know what they were doing. Turns out they did, but ignore that. And so he just decided that, well, it's very simple. The law is if there's no 1099, there's no income. Now, at least he's a little more honest than some people. I definitely have clients who might say, okay, you know, I don't care there's no 1099, you have to report the income. And their next response is, well, how will the IRS find out about it? Yeah, that's it's like that that's getting really close to fraud. You know, just like I realize the numbers aren't big enough that the criminal division would get involved in most cases. But it's like, yeah, no, that's that's not really the question. Uh, let's assume they did. But obviously for Mr. Legowski, that wasn't even a question. How will the IRS know he sold this much through Amazon? Amazon told the IRS. We know that for sure. So he literally thought the rule, you know, the good news is he may not be the sharpest, you know, the brightest bulb in the air in the bunch, but at least he apparently is not wildly dishonest. He believed this was actually the law. Okay. Turns out he now admitted when he got to court, well, he later discovered that maybe he was wrong about that and Amazon did have to report the income. But then he goes for even better one, apparently. But his theory was, well, because he thought they didn't have to report the income, right? He apparently thought he should still be able to leave it off. So, in essence, ignorance of the law in this case, his theory would be, would work great for him. Um, it turns out that, yeah, that, that, that didn't quite work for him. The tax court, go, tax court goes back to IRC Section 61A which says that income is from all sources. All income from all sources is essentially taxable. And as I've explained before, we go through the rest of the code, creating various exceptions to that general rule that income, which generally is considered to be an accession to wealth of some form, is considered taxable unless you can give me an exception. Right? That's the real test. Is there an exception? You know, when clients ever say, well, show me where in the code it says this is taxable, your answer is 61A. Now tell me where it isn't. Now find me the exception because it's taxable under 61A, period. That's the way you write tax laws, by the way. You'll notice that most sales tax laws are written in the same manner. Every sale is taxable, and then we have this list of exclusions. In Arizona, it's an insanely long list of exclusions. That just keeps getting longer every year because the legislature always adds exclusions, never takes them away, which makes for a bit of fun. So we always have a little fun with that issue. So, you know, we, we go down that way. But that's the way the rule works. So, of course, he had that, that little problem. 
All income has to be reported, even if it's exempt from the income reporting rules. And it got worse for him because the IRS, it turns out his, ma- his amount of underreporting, well, there's a couple of problems. First thing is, uh, apparently he was all in on this. You don't need to report the income because it looks like he really didn't keep any records. And so the tax court denied him cost of sales because, you know, they, they took a look at the rules that we see from Cohen, but he presented no evidence on which they could reasonably estimate cost of sales. Bottom line, if you're going to make Cohen work for you, those who don't remember the, who have never heard of the Cohen case, you need to get up on the Cohen case. George M. Cohen, Broadway producer, right? You know, you actually go to Times Square, you'll see a statue. Those of us in tax know it's really a tax statue. Does nothing with Broadway. Uh, in any event, so you, you can go and see George because George George's case is cited more often than any other case. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's the reason why it's a statue there on Broadway. Okay, simple rule. So George's case, what they said was effectively, and the doctors developed from this is, yes, you know, if it's pretty clear expenses had to be incurred, obviously these people received something from him and had been gotten through, you know, through eBay, whoever. So there clearly would be some costs, but there has to be some sort of evidence on which to reasonably estimate the amount. Mr. Legowski presented no evidence. Well, nothing is not evidence that you can reasonably estimate. He didn't present an argument in that resolve. So they didn't give him any sort of deduction. So now he has this significant amount of income. Actually, his total revenue here was more than his wages. The court pointed that out too. And he did claim that, well, he really lost money doing it. But again, no evidence, no backup. The court didn't accept that line. And so his amount of a, amount of understatement of tax was more than 5,000, more than 10% of his income. So now we're looking at the substantial understatement penalty, the accuracy-related penalty for substantially understating your tax. And that's basically an automatic 20% penalty unless you can show that your position had substantial authority. Gang, pretty clear, that's not happening here. He did not have substantial authority for his position. So now we go to number two. Well, you know, did he have a reasonable, you know, did he act, did he have, was a reasonable basis for understating the tax? And the courts look very carefully there at how much work did he do to try to properly determine what his tax was. And the court found that in this case, he really hadn't done much digging to figure out what it was. He had just had this assumption that unfortunately a lot of our clients do, that if there's no 1099, you don't need to report the income. The court said that that mistaken belief, despite how broad, the court didn't say this this line, but I would, despite how widely it might be held, is not a reasonable belief. And as such, guys, tough luck, you got to do something with it. So as I say, all income must be reported, even if it's exempt from the income reporting rules. Next up, the IRS on their webpage keeps talking about community property and its interaction with the unemployment exclusion that was added as part of the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021. This is a modification made to a webpage on the IRS website, Unemployment Exclusion Update for Married Taxpayers Living in Community Property State, and it was issued on the 25th of May. And this gives us one more quirk about the marital exclusion. 
that your tax, or I should say the exclusion for unemployment, that your tax software probably got wrong. Now, community property states, for those who are not aware what they are, let's start in the Pacific Northwest and come around. Just kind of circle around and pick everything up, kind of in a U-shape. Community property states are Idaho, Washington, Nevada, California, right? Uh, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, Louisiana, and Wisconsin. Always love that and Wisconsin routine. So we're up there. Those nine states are the community property states. In community property, generally a married couple is considered the earnings they have. Now, there are weird rules in every state, a little different rules how things go. And so I'm not going to worry about anything except the kind of earned income or income from services. The theory being, if you go back to community property rules, historically, you know, as the as that law developed uh, years and over years and years, uh, the idea is that the married couple works for the community. They no longer are working for each each you know each for themselves. So the community owns all income, and they have an undivided interest in that income. So that's how this goes. The IRS has concluded, because remember, we are a federal system under the U.S. Constitution. And that means there are certain things the states are in charge of, certain things the federal government's in charge of. The states are in charge of property law. Property, what's ownership, how property works, that is a state area only. So the IRS, for tax purposes, we tax income, but we look to the state to figure out who owns the income. Now, there are some exceptions to this, but not really. You might think so. You know, say, wait, wait, but what about that whole fruit and tree bit, right? You know, assignment of income. And the answer there is really what you look at there is an assignment of income. You have somebody who owned the income, legally owned the income under state law, but then assigns ownership rights after they have the rights. Right? They assign the ownership rights to somebody else. They're kind of rewriting the state law. That's considered to be assignment of income. That does not work, but this is not considered that. Rather, what they say here is the unemployment received by both spouses goes into the community pile right? unless the spouses have a valid prenup in the state. You can opt out of community property in most community property states, but you normally have to have a valid prenuptial agreement. Uh, which most clients won't have. So we total that up. We divide that in two. That is considered each spouse's unemployment. Now that's true even if only one spouse was unemployed. Right? We still get to divide it between the two because it's going to be a property state. That means that if for a married filing joint return, we already knew for married separate how this worked. We discussed that previously. But for a married filing joint return in a community property state, a married couple, as long as the unemployment is community income, which it generally will be, we got a basically a $20,400 limit on the maximum exclusion. And it doesn't really matter who it was, you know, who was the party that generated the unemployment. So it doesn't matter if only, let's say we, we have here, you know, we have here, you know, Dwayne and Matilda, and Dwayne had was the only one that was unemployed. Matilda was employed the entire year. Uh, Dwayne got twenty thousand dollars in unemployment, 
Dwayne and Matilda as long as they don't go over $150,000 in modified adjusted gross income, they will be able to exclude the full $20,000 for Dwayne. Now, if Dwayne and Matilda lived in Colorado, that wouldn't work because the $20,000 would all be considered Dwayne's unemployment. And remember, it's $10,200 for each spouse for unemployment. So we'd only get 10200 in the two states, the two northern states of the four corner states. Four corner states are uh, Utah, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico. The northern two are not community property states. There, we'd only get a $10,200 exclusion. Come down to the southern two, Arizona, New Mexico, both which community property states, there we'd get the full 20000 now, the IRS just issued this on the 25th. I know of no software that did this unless you forced it. Now, those of you who, you know, subscribe to Spidel Services, uh, who does a lot of California tax information, they do a California tax guide, etc. Spidel has been pushing this theory all along that, you know, that their, their authors have been saying ever since we began this, that it should work, California being a community property state. Uh, and there were ways to force it, but you're going to be forcing it to a large extent. There, what you're going to have to do is divide the community property, divide that unemployment evenly between the two spouses because you are in a community property state rather than reporting it in the name of the spouse who got the 1099 that your software would like it to be reported. So that, that's what makes it more interesting. Will software be updated to properly handle this community property states? Maybe, uh, you know, a lot of software. There is software. I know that uh, over the years, we've used both CCH Pro System FX and UltraTax, and both of them do have community property features. So in theory, you should be able to flag this. They should be able to treat it properly. But I know they probably won't like it right away. But be aware. So your real maximum in community property states is 20400 If you filed and you didn't do any sort of special work, and you have a client where one of the spouses got more than 10,200 unemployment and they didn't go over the AGI, you know, the modified AGI limit, you may very well need to go back and, uh, you know, redo that return, get it amended to get the fix in. Okay, let's talk now about the all events test. This is technical advice memorandum 2021, right? 21010. This was issued on May the 28th of 2021. Now, this goes to what we call the all events test. So let's talk briefly about what in the world is the all events test. So we start talking about the all events test and how it works. Generally, for the all events test, this is concerned mainly for somebody who's an accrual basis taxpayer. And this is found under Section 461H and Reg 1.461-1A2I. And this says that that accrual basis taxpayer takes a deduction into account in the taxable year when all, the first taxable year when all of these facts are true. All events have occurred that establish the fact of liability. The amount of liability can be determined with reasonable accuracy and economic performance has occurred. Now there is a special recurring items exception that allows you for certain things where economic performance 
will occur before the day you file a return, you know, or even the 15th day of ninth months after. That, as long as that's true, you can consider the performance to be by the end of the year, assuming that the other two requirements are met and you could record it. Okay. Now, what's going to happen in this case is we have a taxpayer. So let's go back, take a look at where we are. So now we have this taxpayer and they're going to establish they have a sales incentive program. They have dealers and they pay incentives to the dealers based upon how much product they move. Now, what they did, they established an incentive program, right? And then they issued kind of this letter. They do it every year that tells their dealers that, you know, we're going to give you a guaranteed minimum incentive based on sales of product you have as of the end of the year, effectively it appears to be, in question, that you sell before a certain date in the following year. And regardless of how much of that you sell, as long as you sell some of that in the following year, we're going to pay you this minimum incentive payment. Okay. That was out there. It was done. It was a unilateral statement that went to all dealers as of the end of the year. And according to the taxpayer, the, it, this represented a legally binding contract under applicable state law, that their state would take this one-way contract as being binding on the manufacturer, that they would have to pay this out to their dealer. You know, if, you know, push comes to shove, it's there. Now they went ahead and they recorded this minimum incentive payment at the end of the year, like December 31st, they would record this minimum that they had agreed to pay in the following year. It will definitely be paid by the date of the recurring item exception. So by effectively September 15th of the following year, they would, under this program, clearly have paid the incentive payments, which would be at least the minimum. So they were accruing that minimum amount and taking the deduction on the return. The IRS pulled this return for exam. They said, sorry, guys, this isn't yet there. What's wrong? We have no trouble with the last two things, right? We agree that economic performance will occur by September 15th. We agree that this will meet the requirements to be the recurring item exception. And we also agree that we know exactly how much you have agreed minimum you're going to pay them. But what we're not going to agree is that the fact of the liability has, has been established. They're saying, at, sorry, guys, it's not been established because the dealer still has to sell something in the following you know, number of months in order to be able to be in the minimum participation program. You aren't really, you know, if they sell nothing in theory, you know, they didn't sell it, didn't sell any of your product during that time period, then they're not part of the minimum incentive program. And the taxpayer said, wait, these guys already have this inventory. They're going to sell it, right? They're going to sell part of that. That's going to be a given. Why wouldn't they sell some of it? Ares says, we don't care why they wouldn't. We're going to say that they don't have to. Now, the taxpayer said, wait, we are the same as the Hughes Properties Supreme Court case. Hughes Properties was a case involving a casino. And under Nevada state law, they had progressive jackpots. 
And Nevada state law required on an annual basis for you to figure out the pay, you know, you had to have a guaranteed minimum payout. And when we computed that number, it would be escrowed and be forced to be paid out uh, to winners in the future who were certain to occur. You know, well, relatively certain, you know, basically certain enough, certainly under, you know, I think any casino would say it's certain to be paid out. Somebody's going to win something. And so we have to pay it out to that group. And the taxpayer in this case said, we're just like that, right? We're, we're, we're the same. You know, we're, we're really no different than that situation. We have something here that is virtually certain to be paid out. And the IRS said, no, no, we, we don't believe this is equivalent to that. We don't see this virtual certainty because in the Nevada case, they emphasize now the fact that the funds were escrowed and the payment was going to be made to somebody pulling the lever on a slot machine. However, they said, in your case, if the dealer doesn't sell, that incentive never gets paid. If that dealer doesn't sell at least one of your products, I mean, it could be very minuscule, but they got to sell something in the following year to trigger. Now, I don't know if the courts would agree with this view or not. It's kind of open, but it's very consistent for the IRS in this regard. The IRS has consistently decided that it is virtually impossible. In the case of an all events test, the IRS loves to go after the fact of the liability. And we even have, which is kind of interesting, it actually relates to, indirectly relates to Kaplan. Uh, or Kaplan's parent company, at the date this actual issue I'm going to bring up took place, uh, Kaplan was not owned by its current parent company. It was owned by Stan Kaplan at that time. But while Stan was running Kaplan off in those years ago, uh, the, the future company that would buy Kaplan uh, when Stan decided to sell was involved in litigation with the IRS. And this litigation involved a question of setting up an incentive payment for dealers. In this case, the dealers were newspaper delivery types and a program that put money aside for them. And there were certain requirements to vest, certain things had to happen to get paid, but that money was going to be paid out to somebody under the program. Uh, the case in question uh, is the case of the Washington Post Company versus United States, 405 F2nd 1279. Now, as of today, the Washington Post Company, I should be clear, does not own Washington Post Company LLC, does not own Kaplan, because Washington Post Company that existed at this point, and in this case, is the one that sold the paper to its current owner, right? So current owner, for those who aren't aware, is that guy named Jeff Bezos that bought that really expensive yacht and expensive divorce recently. You may have heard of him. Involved with something called Amazon. I don't know. Now it works. But in any event, that case, which involved 1957, 58, and 59 tax years, was finally decided by the Court of Claims in 1969. The IRS fought that and had a statement out, uh, basically, in Revenue Ruling 76345 for 42 years. Before, and why I mention this is because they mention it in this ruling as to why they are different from what's now found in Revenue Ruling 2011-29. Now, I'm not going to worry much about that, what's in that ruling. You can read about it in the materials. 
Uh, but what I will say is the IRS always fights tooth and nail what we would see as accountants as things that clearly should be accrued. This thing's going to be paid. There's no question. That expense should be accrued. It's going to be paid. Uh, the IRS really fights on that. And like I said, the mere fact it took them 42 years to acknowledge that they had lost the Washington Post Company case and that courts kept banging that case, bang, just the IRS kept losing that case, kept being cited against the IRS in case after case after case. 42 years later, they finally decide, okay, we throw in the towel. We're, we're done. We, we accept it. You know, We're going to go ahead and we're going to accept that position. Yeah, they fight on it. Now, like I say, the courts don't always agree with the IRS in this position, and I'm not sure that the courts would agree with the IRS on this case. I'm, I don't think this case is nearly as slam dunk as the IRS might hope in the TAM. But it is something that you've got to be clear. The IRS is very likely to go after the fact of a liability, and they're going to fight hard against it. At the very minimum, I think you've got to be ready, if that's what the fight's over, uh, to go to court. And even there, they may fight you, because they just really hate this, as far as I can tell. Because, like I said, they kept litigating Washington Post, hoping somebody would tell them somebody would reverse it for 42 years before they gave up. And they lost a lot on that rule in the 42 years. Um, you know, you just have to be aware that the IRS goes down that path. Uh, effectively, I think the simplest thing to say is the gap rules are not the tax rules. You'd be very careful about that. And that's something to pay attention to here. And this TAM is kind of instructive. Do I believe that? Yeah, I mean, that, that company is on the hook. That's going to be paid, right? In essence, we, we've kind of already agreed to pay that out, even if economically it's ridiculous because we've we've committed to it. And I think certainly an account from the accounting side, your auditor is going to have a little trouble with, ah, nah, don't worry about that. We'll record it when we finally pay it. Be kind of like, wait a minute. No, you already committed to this. There's a commitment here. We, we need, need to be, you know, we, we need to put this on the books because it's, you know, they're going to sell at least one unit. That, that'd be wildly unlikely. They won't sell a single unit out of all that stuff they got in inventory. Doesn't matter. Not going to work. So this has been the Current Federal Tax Development. It's always weird to know how to label the, these weeks when you have a Monday holiday. So I labeled this as June 1st. If you want to think about it as May 31st date, that's fine. But since that was Memorial Day, June 1st is when we start this week. So we'll go down that path and we'll, we'll go from there. Uh, again, I do follow along on the Connect sites. Uh, so we can do that. I'll be for Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, Washington. Uh, you know, keep those in. Keep that up and running. Keep my eye on how those go. Uh, if you have any issues, post there. And if I see something of interest, I'll try to respond. Uh, also, you know, be sure you tune back in here next week. We'll be here doing current federal tax developments. We are beginning to start actual continuing education courses. I will be doing uh, three semi, you know, still webcast at this point. Uh, actually, four courses, I guess, is for Arizona. Maybe five. Yeah, I guess it's it's in that realm now. So I'll be doing a set beginning a week from today. So I'll be looking at things like preparing complex returns. We'll be doing sessions on the issues of Arizona tax update. If Arizona actually figures out what the tax law is going to be by then, it'll be even better. Uh, ethics, we'll be doing a session on the uh, on effectively the employee retention tax credit 
and how that interacts with the PPP. That'll be a very short two-hour webinar. But I'll be doing a series of those courses, so CP starting. Uh, when will we go to live live? I actually do have some live lives uh, set up at this point. Uh, I think my first live live is sometime in August in Phoenix right now is the earliest live session I have with people in a room uh, coming up that I'm booked for right now. So I'll warn you about that. So we're starting to see a few of those open back up. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Probably be slow, but we'll see. We'll be doing a lot of, then we're doing a lot of webcasts in the interim, uh, but we'll see how the other things work. And actually, for those of you in Arizona, all of those courses are going to be webcast as well, right? So, you know, it's, it's not going to be a case where it's going to be only in person. I'll be doing a the, kind of the, the dual broadcast there. So hopefully we'll hopefully we'll see you or at least see you online in one of those courses. And we'll see you back here next week for more going on with current federal tax developments.